Over the past number of weeks, we've been going through questions that you submitted to us online, and, and we're going through the most popular ones that you voted up. And um, we've got a couple more weeks to go addressing some of these questions. And this morning's question, it's, it's, a, it, it's a tough one. This morning's question that I want to try to tackle is, what does God think about abusive marriages? Now, listen, I, I know when I say that, for some of you, that sparks all all kinds of emotions, all kinds of things from your current reality and for some of you, your past. And I want to remind you that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. For some of you think, well, this doesn't apply to me, and I, I'll tell you what, it applies to a lot of people around you. My hope is to apply it to more than just abusive relationships. One of the questions about toxic relationships, we'll get into that a little bit this morning. Um, but as this is the case always, your, your situation is so, um, it's just so, so unique that I, I'm not going to be able to address every aspect of every question you have about this topic, specifically about your situation. And so the invitation is always open. If you've got specific questions, you want to talk more about this, my email address, actually, my contact info is in the program. Just, just shoot me a note, and I'm happy to talk more about this in your particular situation. So help, help Lord as we dive in. I want to start out by answering the question directly, as what does God think about abusive marriages? And I'll say, what does he think about abuse in general? Psalm, one, Psalm 15, sorry, Psalm 11.5 says this, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. If you want to know what God thinks about abuse in any form, God hates it. God hates any form of oppression. God hates any form of abuse. God hates it. So let's be clear about that. Abuse is a sin. So the question is, okay, if abuse is a sin, then, well, then what do we, what do, we do about that? I, I, I know, right, when you ask a question, it's not just the question. There's often the question behind the question. I'm sure those of you that are wondering, what does God think about abuse of marriages? You're not just asking, does God think that they're good or bad? Obviously, they're bad. Think the questions are then, okay, well, what do we, what do, we do about that? If I'm in an abusive relationship, if I'm in an abusive marriage, if someone I know is in an abusive relationship, well, well what do I do? And, and that's the part I want to dig into more here this morning. There's been a verse that's been really helpful for me among many that, as I've been preparing for this over the past few weeks, that's given me a lot of clarity and a lot of focus about forgiveness and about dealing with sin in relationships. Turn to Luke 17, verse 3 and 4. Luke 17, 3 and 4, and this is what it says. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in, a, in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. I mean, this has been really interesting to me because I think we have one of two extremes that we tend to go to in terms of sin. One of those things is that we tend to be very easily offended. And I'm not talking about abuse. I'm just talking about sin things in general where we tend to be very easily offended. We assume things about other people or um, we, we interpret it that they're wronging us. And sometimes 
uh, we build things in our mind because of a misunderstanding or a miscommunication or a different perspective. And so then what we do is we take that and we form a certain lens and view everything with that person from the past and moving forward through that lens of wrong and sin. And we think, man, they're just, they're horrible to us. And sometimes they are, but sometimes it's a misunderstanding. And if we would go to that person and ask for clarification, go to them and tell how you've been hurt, go to them and how you've been wronged, I think a lot of times sin in relationship can be dealt with very quickly at the very beginning by simply going to someone and say, hey, you hurt me, wrong me, and then the miscommunication, the misperception could be cleared up at the beginning. But oftentimes we live in a culture that doesn't like to address hard things, right? I think that's the way of an obligation. Go in humility, go in gentleness, but to, to confront that. If you've got a question, go to that person. If your brother sins, right, rebuke him. So the question is, well, does he sin? Well, not everything is, is a sin, but we also go the other side of it, where we're like, well, it wasn't that big of a deal, so I'm just going to let it go. Well, I, I, it wasn't really even a sin. I mean, I'm not so, so sure. Where I think, unfortunately, because we have not often taught forgiveness in its general context, we only hear, hear forgive, 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 forgive. And I think sometimes we are too quick to forgive without addressing the sin that's been committed against us. I think this is a prime example in abuse, is that we are told to forgive, but we are told to forgive the way God has forgiven us. I mean, listen, God's forgiveness towards us is radical. It's insane. It's ridiculous. I and mean, we've got a couple of people in a few minutes that are going to get baptized. And it's a, it's a picture of God's grace, God's love, God's extravagant mercy, God's forgiveness. But God forgives us. He offers forgiveness to us all, but we receive it when we repent of our sins. I think oftentimes with one another, when we're quick to just dismiss something the issue of the sin goes unresolved. The issue of the sin goes unspoken to and then the sin continues and grows out of hand. That's why I think it says here that we have an obligation. Pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now sometimes the question is like, well, is it really sin? Let's look at abuse. Is it really abuse? It's not physical, right? There's all kinds of forms of other abuse. Like, there is emotional abuse. Is the person that you're in a relationship, are they controlling? Is it always your fault? Are they isolating you? Are they blaming you for everything? Are they cutting you off from friends? Are they trying to take away your phone, take away communication with the outside? There's a number of things that may indicate there's other kinds of abuse and sometimes, even if it's not abuse, it is still sin if, if a husband does not treat you the way Christ treats the church. I think so often we see the ramifications of crappy teaching about the headship in the church. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in Ephesians chapter 5, it paints the picture where the man is the head of his wife. The question is, what does that mean? It's true that the man is head of his wife, but the analogy then goes on to say the way, the way Christ is head of the church. And too often, I think we've made it to believe that we have to, women have to submit to their husbands no matter what, even if there is abuse. Listen, 
We are told, yes, women to submit to their husbands, but that doesn't mean at all costs. We're told to submit to other things in Scripture. That doesn't mean at all costs. We're told in Romans chapter 13 to submit to the governing authorities. That doesn't mean at all costs. That means if it causes you to sin, you do not submit to the governing authorities. Even in Scripture, when we're told to submit to our husbands, there's, there's, a pro, there's a allowances for divorce. So even in that, there's an example of cases where you do not have to submit needlessly. Some of us don't have a clear picture of what it means for the man to be the head of his wife, the way Christ is the head of the church, where the man initiates the way Christ initiated with us. God did not wait for us to take the first step towards him. He took the first step towards us. He didn't wait for us to lay our life down first. He initiated and laid his life down for us and invites us to do the same. That's, men, what we are supposed to do for our wives. We lay down our lives. We lift up our wives. We initiate putting our own needs are the, wife, the needs of our wife above our own. Our job is to lift up and encourage and edify our wives and invite them in return to do the same. I get really passionate about this because I just get, I don't mean to be crass, but this is my emotion. I get pissed when we spiritualize sin. Where we stand there and say, well, I'm the head. you got to do what I say and do what I want. That is not biblical headship. Headship is laying our lives down for our wives. And here's the thing I get passionate about because I see too many relationships before it gets to marriage where we, we, blindly, um, we blindly turn the other way of red flags towards this. I've talked to a few women this week who have been in abusive relationships. And don't get me wrong, like, abusive relationships is not just men to women. It's also women to men. And some of you are men that have been in abusive relationships, okay? But a lot of times, physically, it's men that are more abusive than women. And I was like, okay, well, what are some warning signs? And some said, well, right, the role of the husband is to, to, to like, lift up his wife and to, to edify and encourage is... Does the person speak well of the other individual in public or do they speak, have name-calling and are they harsh with their words? Because here's the deal. If I'm with someone and, and, and a man or vice versa is harsh with his words and starts name-calling their boyfriend or girlfriend and they're willing to do that in front of me, what are they willing to do in private? One, one woman just said to me, she goes, you know, if, if you're with a, a man and he's just walking in front of you all the time, it's, it's not always, but it could be a, a red flag that they're only concerned with themselves and they're not concerned with you at all. Is the guy you're with or the woman you're with, is it always your fault and do they ever take ownership for their own sin and their own wrong? That's a huge thing. Like oftentimes... Right, we're told to confront the sin, and I'll get into this in a minute, and there should be repentance. But oftentimes, it's like, well, I did it because you did this to me. Now, listen, we don't let our kids use that excuse. Well, I hit him because he looked at me funny. Why is that acceptable for our own relationships with one another? We own our own stuff. My encouragement for some of you that are in relationships now and you have questions about, uh, is it really sin or is it not sin? Uh, is it abuse? Okay, it may or may not be abuse, but do you want to be with a man that doesn't honor you the way Christ honors the church? 
And if there are red flags and you're not sure about it, invite others into that process so they can see it and speak into it and give you wisdom and say, mm, that is abuse. And if that, that's the case, run. In Luke 17, we're given the pathway to deal with sin in relationship, including abuse. But he says, if your brother or sister is in sin, what's our next step? What are we supposed to do? What's it say? Rebuke him. Sometimes I think we're afraid to call out sin in one another because we don't want to appear judgmental. Like, who am I to judge? Do not judge lest ye be judged. Listen, that is talking about judging someone's salvation. We have a responsibility and an obligation as brothers and sisters in Christ to point out the sin in each other's lives. Throughout Scripture, that is a mandate and a calling. It says, if there's sin, call it out. If you are being abused or you see someone being abused, call it out. It's sin. That's our responsibility because the thing is, the consequence for sin, sin's not just between you and God. It's not between you and someone else only. It's also any amount of sin affects the whole church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of sin spiritually affects the whole body. God cares about the holiness of his church and we have a responsibility. Not in this arrogant witch hunt kind of sin hunter kind of way, but we are told to go to them, rebuke them, walking in humility, walking in grace, taking the plank out of our own eye before we take the speck out of someone else's eye, going to them and saying, hey, what you're doing it doesn't seem to line up with scripture let's talk about this going with the humility and understanding even the worst sin that's been committed we are uh, we apart from the grace of Jesus Christ are just as likely to commit that same dark sin as they are if it wasn't for the grace of God we confront the sin we rebuke here's the deal it says if he repents what do we do we forgive now, forgiveness, there's two words, meaning one means to release, the other one means to cover over. And, and that's the thing. If, if you confront someone in their sin and they repent, our job is to forgive. Now, the, the key is, though, it says, if they repent. Repentance doesn't simply mean saying, oh, I'm sorry. The Bible talks a lot about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is like, oh man, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I got busted. I'm sorry you feel bad about that. That's not the same as repentance. Godly sorrow is a grief in our heart that recognizes that we've sinned against the Lord and deeply offended and sinned against this person, which leads us to repentance, which means to turn the other way, to stop doing what we're doing and turn the other way and ask for forgiveness. That's repentance. And here's the deal. Some of you have been told, well, if you're in an abusive relationship, well, they've, they've, you've, you have to forgive them because they've asked for forgiveness and now they should come back to the way things were. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Forgiveness is the first step towards reconciliation. Reconciliation is the relationship being restored to the way things were before. And honestly, I don't think it's a bad thing to let a period of time pass to prove that the repentance is true and it is actual and not just the words that are spoken. Because if you've been in an abusive relationship, you know. They'll say sorry, and then they'll do all the right things for a while. 
buy you flowers, say the nice things, do the right things, and all of a sudden, after time, that begins to fade, and they go back to right, the, right to the way they were before. That's not repentance. That's just saying, sorry, I got caught. For some of you, I think there's wisdom in taking a step away and not being around your abuser to prove, in fact, that there is true repentance and true change that is taking place. Because we were told to forgive, yes. It says, if they repent, then you offer forgiveness. And then it says, right, if, you, if they say, I'm sorry, seven times in a day, you're, you're, you're to, and say, I repent seven times in a day, you are to forgive them seven times in a day. And I think it's, 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 it's making exaggeration. It's making a point saying that we should continue to forgive over and over again because we continue to screw up. But I don't think this means that you just bring them back into the way things were without seeing if there's true repentance. So we go to someone and we rebuke them. If there's repentance, we forgive. What if there's not forgive? What if there's not repentance? Look with me over at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, verse 15. This is a pretty well-known passage about how to handle sin in the church. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Similar to what we read in Luke chapter 17, right? Like you, you go to them, you confront them, you point it out, right? In grace, in humility, um, looking for repentance. And if they repent, you forgive, you've, you've won them over. But if not, verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So he's given us a, a pattern here saying, listen, if you go to them one-on-one and they don't listen, then you take someone else with you to confront the person and say, hey, this is an issue, this is a sin that's going on, hoping that they'll hear it with, a witness, with someone else speaking to that as well. That if they repent, then we forgive. And if they don't, then it says you take them to the church. What does it mean you take them to the church? There's a lot of speculation on what this means, but I think meaning maybe it's the elders, maybe it's broader than that, maybe it's the fuller church, a number of people in the church to say this is such an issue, we're coming together to point this out, calling you, begging you to stop, begging you to walk in repentance to this. The hope is that, that their eyes would be open to it being sin and that there would be repentance. And if not, it says you treat them as you would a sinner or tax collector. This has been the challenging thing for me this week. Because there's an aspect of Listen, there's just this aspect of church discipline that it's so weird for us because we either have a tendency to go hyper-grace or hyper-legalism, right? And Jesus walks in this balance between grace and truth. And we want to be welcoming and welcoming and welcoming. But there, the thing that's, that's, lit, that's blown my mind this week are how many commands there are to say, if you get to a point, not right away, walking with people, if there's no repentance, you let them go. I mean, this is what it says. You treat him as you would a pagan or tax collector. He's talking to, about a, a group of Jewish people in the context of a synagogue. The Jews and tax collectors would not be allowed in. They were not part of it. They were excused out. And, and even if 
you don't believe that to be the case, you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4 through 11. This is what it says. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of, his fl- of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may uh, be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even eat with such a one. I mean, that feels like, doesn't that feel really harsh? No. At, at first I'm like, What? But I think once I, I mean, getting to understand what, what's at stake here, it's not like the first hint of any of these sins, boom, you're out of here, right? It's walking with people in, in grace, but being truthful in what needs to change, what truthful what needs to go. And, and, and it's not the same thing as when we're struggling with sin, but we don't want to sin. We have a heart towards holiness, but we're just struggling. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about when you walk with people and you bring someone to confront the sin, you bring someone else, you take it to the church, if they continue to progress in walking in unrepentance, then it says you have nothing to do with them. You don't even eat with such a one. You let them go. Because it's a terrible witness to the outside world when we continue to celebrate and not make a big deal of sin when we're calling ourselves to say that we're new creations, that we serve a different master. It's a terrible witness when we look just like the world around us when we profess to do something differently. Listen, I, I know you're looking at me like, oh. I mean, it's, I, I'm not trying to be harsh. But I think in return, in terms of, um, let me give you one more. Titus 3.10. As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. I think for me, this is a huge impact on forgiveness because we try and we try and we try to work things out with somebody. We try to, to for repentance, we try to, to forgive, but if there's just no repentance, then what do you do? Are you stuck? And I think this is where we have a, a transition of an understanding of what forgiveness is. Where now we can forgive in saying, I've tried with this person to deal with the sin and now I'm going to release it to the Lord. This is the other meaning of forgiveness, is to release. It literally is the same word in the Bible used for divorce. It's used to let someone go. It's to to release it. And then God desires us to work hard at trying to deal with the sin with one another so there's repentance, but there may be a point where you try and you try and you try, and I believe our response is to let them go, and I think we let them go in two ways. In this verse we see earlier, we let them go to Satan so they may experience the consequences of their decisions and that that would lead them to repentance. And also we we release them to the Lord. When we release people to the Lord and trust that God himself will give vengeance, then we are free to do what the Bible says about loving our enemies, praying for them, and blessing them. Now listen, 
I don't know what that means for your situation. But my prayer for some of you this morning is you've tried and you tried and you tried with some people and they continue to walk in unrepentance. And this morning the Lord may say, it's time for you to release them over to the Lord. And now I know what you're thinking. What about my situation? Do I have to stay with my abuser? Does releasing them mean divorce? Listen, that's the thing that I think is tough. Because each one of your situations is unique. Each one of your situations is different. That I encourage you to continue. That's why it's important to bring the church along in the process that they can speak wisdom to you. But I'm going to be frank with you. If you are in a relationship with someone that's abusive, that's not honoring to the Lord. And it's not honoring to you. That sin needs to be confronted and dealt with. Abuse is a sin. Some of you feel stuck because you haven't been believed. And I'm sorry that oftentimes the church has not done a good job of believing those of you that are abused. Some of you are in a spot you feel like, I, I, I try to confront her. If I, if I confront them with sin, they're going to beat me up. If that's the case, I think God understands the heart and he says skip to step two and you bring other people along. Some of you feel stuck this morning because... You don't know what you're going to do financially. You don't know how you're going to make it. And I'll tell you, there are resources available that we're not just going to tell you we're going to walk with you. We actually want to walk with you in every way possible. Whatever your situation demands and needs, and that's why my email is in the program. Even when we release people to the Lord, pray that our heart continues to remain soft because the call is that if we release them to the Lord and the Lord transforms their heart to true repentance, our job is still to walk in forgiveness together. I want to leave you with this. Actually, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the Lord. God, each one of our situations is so unique. Will you speak to us? God, I pray for hope for hopeless situations. I pray for hope for uh, situations that just don't know how they're going to get changed. I pray for uh, wisdom and how to take steps that need to have steps be taken. 
in, in relationships, God, for a variety of reasons that are broken, God, and that sometimes the easy thing is just to quit on them. God, I pray that you would give us an endurance and a steadfastness to continue to press in to restore relationships that have been broken, God. I pray that as much as depends on us, that we would be at peace with one another. But God, I know there's just some situations of people, they've tried and they've tried, and so many, oh my goodness, so many are sitting here that are in abusive relationships and feeling shame and condemnation, like how did this happen to me? I pray that you release them of that shame in Jesus' name. That is, oh, Some of them are believing, it's my fault. If I would have just done this or done this, then this wouldn't have happened to me. God, I pray that you release them of that lie in Jesus' name. God, I pray that sin would be exposed for what it is. It's sin. But God, that as sin is exposed and there's repentance, God, we'd be people that lavish each other with grace, lavish each other with forgiveness, lavish each other with love, God. But we know, God, the greater extent to which we know what we've been forgiven of, the greater that we can love so we give us the grace to walk this balance of grace and truth together. And we know, God, none of this is possible apart from your Holy Spirit. So God, would you fill us afresh with your spirit this morning? We pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.